The backcountry discovery routes in the U.S. offer some incredible riding opportunities, but some of the most exciting routes can also be somewhat difficult to ride. And this is where Emmaus Moto Tours comes in. Emmaus Moto Tours specializes in the backcountry discovery routes. It's owned and operated by a very enthusiastic adventure rider and guide named John Sirabassi. And John is on every single trip that Emmaus Moto Tours runs. Every trip, the owner. John is the lead while another rides sweep. But the reason John's on every trip is, is really steeped in his reason for starting Emmaus Moto Tours. And that's to share the passion that he has for these places along the backcountry discovery routes and the ride itself. Emmaus runs with small groups of up to 10 motorcycles. And John says the detailed planning that they have really makes riding the backcountry discovery routes easier and more fun. EmmausMototours.com is a website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That's E-M-M-A-U-S-Mototours.com. Emmaus Mototours. Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, a roundtable-style spinoff from Adventure Rider Radio that we do each month about motorcycle travel. On this episode of Raw, we talk about what moto travel was like coming up to now and then what it may be like for us in the future with everything going on in the world right now. But before we do that, I want to give a shout-out to some people who helped the show incredibly this past month with support of $50 or more. Now, this is part of our our support program that we do for people who support Adventure Rider Radio. Um, We would love to get you as a supporter for it. It's built on a model of advertising and listener support. These are some people that have helped out greatly in this past month, and I want to give a shout-out to them. Doug Mullet, Les Terrell and the Terrell Group, Ronald Fields, Stephen Atira, Susan Bithel, Bobby Wilson, Santil Karapaswamy, and you're going to have to let me know if, if I got that wrong. We did email, but we didn't hear back from you about that. So I apologize if I've not got your name correctly there. Russell King, Paul Murray, Robert Thompson, George Vernon, Rob Tonneson. Thank you all very much. It, you know, it's just a, a fantastic thing to have listener support. And as I mentioned, it is built on a model of advertising and listener support. And um, we would love to get you supporting us through our patron program. Drop our website, AdventureRiderRadio.com, and click on support. Now, here we go. Adventure Rider Radio Raw for May 2020. Recorded live from the Canoe West Media Studios on the shores of Vancouver Island, this is Adventure Rider Radio Raw, roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind, completely unscripted, raw, and personal. My name is Jim Martin, and today the virtual roundtable afforded through the magic of the internet, I am joined by my regular Overland co-host, plus another. I'm going to start with the other. Dan Collins is from Fresh Tracks. Um, Dan is the sponsor of the show, and I was planning on bringing Dan in to talk about the uh, the sponsored portion, and I thought, why don't we just have him in here for the whole show? So, Dan, welcome. Well, thank you very much, Jim. It's great to be here. I, I hope you survived the evening. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny you should say that, Jim. I mean, as if we're rabid fords or something. God. I, did, oh, no. I did try and warn him. We should yeah. seriously wish him good luck. <laughs> He's going to need it, right? <laughs> and all the way over from Australia, mid-afternoon, Brian and Shirley, good afternoon. Hello, hello. 
hi, it's a great day. We've been released from COVID-19 <laughs> lockdown today. And guess what? I've just done 200 kilometres on Big Red, the beautiful old BMW, and it felt magnificent. It was raining. I don't care. I just went for a ride. Uh, when we say released, it's a gradual <clears throat> process, and today was the first time you could legally ride a motorbike unless you were just going to the supermarket. And tonight we can go and visit people as long as there's only five of us in the room and we can have a picnic of ten people. Uh, that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> he was so that's... despondent this morning when he woke up and it was raining. <laughs> all, all, none of my mates wanted to come playing with me. I thought, stuff it, I'm off. So I just Amen. went off and I, I went on a thing called the Birkenwills Trail and I found the site of the first manned flight of an aeroplane in Australia, which flew a total of seven metres. Now, <laughs> some of us can fly that far on a motorbike. But, <laughs> so, yeah, I've, I've had a great time, thanks. And uh, I'm back and um, very happy to be with you, with everyone and welcome, Dan. Well, let, let's bring in the others here. Graham Field in Bulgaria. Graham? Yeah, yeah, it's bright and sunny. Our summer has come. And uh, our lockdown is over. Our state of emergency finished, uh, well, finishes today, actually, the 13th. So um, I wouldn't say anything's back to normal, but you're now more likely to die on the road than you are of COVID. <laughs> <laughs> is that for, from traffic accidents? Is that what you're saying? Oh, they're appalling, just appalling. <laughs> Sam Manicom is in the UK, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, but not equipment-wise this morning. Ah, well, bit of an IT numpty, no idea what's going on this morning, but um, hey, the, the the luxury of having multiple items of technology, and of course, I've called all my neighbours, it's only four o'clock in the morning um, when I started this morning, um, and of course, they will run around with their computers, and so I'm on my phone. But that's okay, it's okay, it's a beautiful morning here this morning. Do you know that, I'm, 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 I, before we came on air, I was sitting thinking about how things have changed in the last month, um, weather-wise. The last time we recorded this, it was pitch black outside, and this morning, it's a beautiful dawn, and if I were to open the windows, um, we'd be bombarded with that lovely um, dawn sound of all of the birds um, waking up to the day. Mm. It's um, I love this time of year. So do I. I love the summer. We, we have we have early morning light now. You get up at five o'clock in the morning. It's light here uh, in British Columbia, and nine o'clock at night. It's still light. It's just I, I love this time of year. I really do. And speaking of mm -hmm. British Columbia, let me bring in Grant Johnson, who is also in British Columbia. Grant, good evening. Hello, everybody. And yes, it is. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful spring here. It's turning to become actually summer, I think, but it's gorgeous out there. And I've been out and about and riding my bicycle and getting some exercise and doing what I can and looking forward to getting riding very soon. They're talking about releasing us soon. I just can't wait. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, I guess we'll see what happens in, in the coming weeks. Well, on this episode... We're going to sort of talk about a little bit about COVID-19 only because it relates to the, the whole topic. And it's something that we haven't really spent a lot of time with on, on Adventure Rider Radio or Raw purposely, really, because I think we all have had about all we can take of listening to the, the news and, and what's going on with it. And we all have to deal with it in our own ways. So we've tried to avoid it with Adventure Rider Radio. But um, we are going to mention it today. We are going to talk a little bit about it um, as we move on further into the show. What we're going to talk about is the history, evolution, and future of motorcycle travel. 
Yeah, that's a pretty lofty title, maybe a bit ambitious, but uh, we're not writing a book here. We're just talking. We're having a conversation about um, where we've come from in moto travel, um, where we've got to, maybe pre-COVID got to, and then um, where we where we think or where everyone may have an opinion of where we're going to go in this, what sort of changes we're, we're going to to see. Now, before we get going on this, Dan, I'm just, uh, so, so everybody knows here, your experience for motorcycling, you, you haven't been into riding all that long, have you? No, really quite new. Um, just over a year, I suppose. It, it was January 2019. I, uh, I bought a bike, um, having never owned a, a two-wheeled motorcycle before. I had four-wheeled uh, ATVs or quad bikes for many, many years, but they're not used on the road. Um, but I actually drove, I passed my test way back over 20 years ago, but uh, didn't ever, quite honestly, I was never allowed to buy a bike. I, the day I passed my test, I said to my wife, I got home, I'd, I'd done str- straight from never riding to the full training to do a test, passed the test, came home full of joy and said, I passed my test. And she said, well done, you're never having a motorbike. And that was, um, <laughs> <laughs> that, was that celebration. So, uh, uh, does, your, does your wife know you well? Well, um, yes, she feels fairly well, I think. <laughs> My question was going to be, do you still have the same wife now you've got a motorbike? She's matured. <laughs> I was going to say you have. <laughs> she's, she's finally got to the point where she says, Dan, I, I think you've matured enough. You can handle a motorcycle now. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But the thing is, you don't just own one bike now. You, you've got how many? Um well, two two-wheeled ones and still got the ATV, so um, three in total if you include the ATV. Um, so I've got a, a, a CRF 250, um, which is a sort of great small bike for um, learning off-road and, and experimenting and going locally. And then a, an Africa Twin Adventure Sports, so the big, big Africa Twin, which mm-hmm. is phenomenal. It's fantastic for covering loads of miles, but can do a lot off-road. And uh, I'm trying to build my skills to be able to go places on that that... Uh, um, you know, people might think it, it wouldn't go. Why the passion? Where, where does that come from? But, you know, all this time without a motorcycle, you get a motorcycle just over a year ago and, and now you're into them, too into them, and you are you seem very passionate about it, at least from what I know of you. Yeah, I suppose my adventuring began with four-wheel drive vehicles with Land Rovers and would go off on trips in those without a great agenda and would be able to sort of deviate down side roads and try and find places to, to camp with a vehicle, um, which is great, but you know, Land Rover is harder to hide. Um, so that, that was, I've always done that sort of thing. I've, um, used other vehicles and cars and then I even got into you know, running, cycling and got quite into uh, running long distances and camping. Um, and would try and get the pack lighter and lighter and lighter. And then in the end realized that my age was getting older the packs weren't getting as light as they needed to be and uh, i needed some way of carrying the kit and uh, then really stumbled across well initially the adventure travel film festival which had a lot of biking content but a real wide range of content as well but honda was sponsoring that so i um had a chat to the guys at honda and that's really where where i got hooked um but also listening to this show um i think i found, i think i found raw before i found adventure rider radio um by chance so we listened to this show and got thought you know got learned so much from you guys and discovered what you'd achieved and what was possible and, and realized that this isn't that difficult um and so that's where my um passion began you know my more recent passion began and it has become a bit all-consuming actually um so um i think my wife's regretting the fact she ever changed her mind 
So what you're saying is you, you bought a bike because you, you're too old to run? Did I just get that from that conversation? <laughs> That's harsh, but yes. <laughs> I've got to say, Dan, you've got a great radio voice. It, it reminds me of when I used to do trucking through the night and tune into whatever local station I could find and, and I hear this sort of smooth DJ on the late night hour and I'm listening to you now thinking, oh man, that's a good radio voice. <laughs> Try and keep you awake. <laughs> Graham, did you ever get satellite radio when you were driving truck? Oh God, no. We didn't even have mobile phones there and I'd go off on a truck on a Monday and I was completely isolated. I might get to a delivery spot and they say, you've got a fax from your company. But that was the extent of it. Mm. No, we were well isolated in those days. No, I'm forgetting how old you are. I was thinking it was more <laughs> more recent <laughs> truck driving that you were doing. <laughs> Gotcha. Dig a hole. Go on, dig a hole. <laughs> well, well, let's get into it here. Let, let's um. So, let's obviously the sensible way to do this is to talk about the past and then move into contemporary and then the future. So, the past, where you started motor travel, and um, rather than chancing falling into sort of comparing and just saying, well, back in the day, you know, when we started out or when I started doing this. Maybe you guys have some stories that sort of illustrates what travel was like through your story, you know, rather than doing a, a direct comparison, just so we get sort of a, some sort of baseline of what it was like when you, in your story, when you started traveling. Sam? When, we, when you gave us these topics, I started thinking about this quite hard. And the, one of the first thoughts that popped into my mind was how reliance we were on maps and a compass when we first started or when I first started overlanding. And, you know, in a way there was a sort of innocence to travel in the past. And I suppose to a certain extent there was um, a greater courage involved because there was more unknown. And maps, well, that got me start thinking about um, a particular time in Kenya. Um, I just... I suppose it was about five and a half months into the big trip. I just got to the stage where I'd realized that I wasn't afraid of my motorcycle anymore. I wasn't afraid of um, going on dirt roads and I was, I was hunting them out. But then, of course, there was no GPS or anything else like that. So it was literally a case of using um, a map and a compass and hoping that your map was good enough and hoping that um, you hadn't knackered your compass somehow. But heading off up into northern Kenya and on tiny little dirt tracks... And every time I passed um, a junction, just hoping that I wasn't taking the wrong turning because um, there were no signposts or anything else like that. But what a magnificent feeling it was. You know, all of those pictures of the savannah that you see in travel programs and travel brochures uh, you know, about this part of the world. And you've got the rolling plains and you've got the acacia trees and so on. Um, this dry, rolling landscape. Uh, just magnificent. And there's this sort of fear of cocking it up because you are feeling like you're riding on a, on a thin line, but at the same time, you've prepared for getting lost. So you've got the supplies and so on. So you've got that sort of reassurance with you. I, I really like um, the tingle that's involved with that. Mm. Yeah, I guess maps is a an obvious one, isn't it? I mean, um, not, not um, that probably came out wrong, Sam. I wasn't saying your story was an obvious one, but I mean, maps are one of those things that we all go to because I think we can all relate to that. Uh, just like Graham said, you know, back in the day when you just had the radio when he, when he was driving his truck, that's something that um, has certainly changed the world as we know it. How about you, Graham? 
Well, one of the things that came to mind was motorcycle reliability. I mean, firstly, they they weren't so reliable back then, and my I couldn't really afford much in the way of bikes. So breaking down was a daily part of my life, and my first sort of I would call long distance, or at least going away with a tent. Uh, style of biking was always the bike rallies, the bike shows. That's what it was, with always a, a clear destination at the end of the journey where you would stay for a couple of nights. And breaking down was inevitable. And uh, I've got a Facebook uh, group, which is uh, a Kent Custom Bike Show, which was in its day in the late 80s, early 90s, the biggest bike show in the UK. And uh, there used to be this, one of the stands there was called Dead Bike and there used to be these stressed out guys in shorts covered in oil who were welders and toolboxes and would just have this line of bikes which were there to be repaired so the rider could get back from the rally at the end of the weekend. <laughs> um, reliability was probably the bane of my life. All my bikes broke down all the time. I rode old Hardys, uh, what else did you have? XT500, that wasn't so bad. Um, oh, Z250 broke down all the time. It wasn't really my first reliable bike. It wasn't until 2006, I think, which was a Triumph Sprint 955, which was wonderful. I didn't. I stopped thinking, well, what's that noise? And started thinking, <laughs> where should I stay tonight? Not at the side of the road. <laughs> when you're fixing your bike and they're breaking down on you all the time, did it occur to you that it was unreliable or anything or was it just part of what you did? Well, I feel always fascinated. It's like I drive a truck all day, every day, month in, month out, never have a mechanical issue. But why do motorbikes break down every day? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> my mate pointed out to me, well, the truck's a lot newer. It's a lot bigger, slower revving engine. And uh, and and they're maintained. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's kind of a key point there, isn't it? That's it's true, the maintenance yeah. side of things. And when I set off on the big trip, I had almost no mechanical knowledge at all. But I did understand the concept of preventative medicine um, for a bike. And yeah, that's why at the end of the day, um, I'd had a fairly gnarly journey. Um, then I'd be the first thing I'd do is put the kettle on to make a cup of tea. And the next thing I'd be doing is sitting by the bike and just going over it bit by bit, making sure that there was nothing that worked loose or oil leaking where it shouldn't have been or something like that. Um I've got a little bit lazier in, in more recent times. But and but the thing is that with modern bikes, uh, the tolerances are just much better. I mean, let's face it, for all engines, automobiles and everything, you, you used to see that that oil track in, you know, in North America in the middle of the road from cars, all cars leaked oil. I mean, the remain seals all leaked. Um, nowadays, cars are pretty tight. So there, there's been some changes with technology over the years. It's made cars and motorcycles in particular very reliable for us. People don't break down the same at all. I mean, you know, Graham's not breaking down the same. <laughs> no. Graham? No. Bikes aren't. <laughs> there's, a classic, there's a classic example of that, though, isn't there? I mean, with the Royal Enfields in India, Um there were so many mechanics. Almost every street corner had a Royal Enfield um, mechanic sitting on it. And quite often the screwdriver and the hammer were, were his tools. Um, but the bikes broke down all of the time. Yet you've got the bikes that look almost exactly the same now, but you know, with everything retooled and the tolerances sorted out and all of the rest of it, those bikes are hugely reliable. Uh, I've just finished uh, my 66 Enfield uh, in our lockdown. I've been uh, fiddling and twirling uh, spanners up there in the shed. 
and the old 66 Enfield with its pushrod valve engine and uh, all that is really, really simple to go over and tighten everything up. And it's every time I go to start it now that I've got the carburetion sorted out with the old Amal Carby, second kick, bang, away it goes. So if you stopped and every night went over it like you did, Sam, with your BMW, it would be fine. And, and, and I think that's that's one thing I, I've yeah. um, thought about as time's gone on. We used to make bikes fit for purpose. It didn't matter what sort of bike you had. When uh, I was going camping with my mates in the old days, we would uh, – I, I never broke down, um, I've got to say, um, because I was on a little two-stroke. They were all on these uh, old banger um, four-stroke things like your Harley and all the rest of it. And um, uh, they would break down all the time. My little two-stroke would keep going and going and going. But um, travel now uh, in those days, what we would do is um, we wouldn't even have a tent. We would have a sleeping bag, a mat, uh, a tarp, a um, billy to um, (laughs) cook things in. Uh, some canned food, and, of course, the obligatory bottle of Stone's Green Ginger Wine. That was it. Yeah, but there's no way Shirley's going to go like that today. Oh, can I tell you, I certainly wasn't on the scene in those days. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have many girlfriends for some reason. I can't oh, work I it out. That's <laughs> odd. Very strange. <laughs> but, that's, but that's how we rolled. You know, everyone did the same. We would leave on a Saturday morning and disappear into the scrub and um, talking about uh, coming to intersections, Sam, and, and um, you know, when you're out in the middle of the desert, you've got to know where you're going and you'd, you'd be relying on a compass um, or, oh, yeah, I know the river's over there, the sun's over there, uh, we're going that way. And the other thing was getting fuel in some of those places. I don't know how you went in Africa, mate, but um, we'd find uh, we'd have to go into um, homesteads and stations and buy fuel off the um, homestead sometimes and things like that. That's how you got around in the bush. Yep. And they're open to doing that back then? They didn't think anything of it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and they'd get their fuel delivered by the um, by the postie. The postman actually drove a truck and he would be delivering 44-gallon drums of fuel to, um, to the stations and things like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> Was the postman also delivering food supplies and that sort of stuff? Or yes. Would they, would they, yeah. Yep, 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 yep. And uh, uh, the one, one of the only, when I was mustering sheep up in the outback, um, the middle two-stroke did let me down because it's stinking hot when you're talking at 50 degrees, um, clambering up sand dunes and all that sort of stuff on your little two-stroke and it hold the piston got just too hot. So, you know, um, and when you're out there, it's survival. Um but, you know, that's another story. But bikes, I, I think, nowadays are just so much better. They're, they're fit, you know, you get a bike that's fit for purpose um, for adventure travel like Dan's Africa Twin or my GS or whatever. They are just so good. There's, there's so much more designed equipment, isn't there? Everything's very, 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 very specialised. I mean, I was going to talk about um, my, my first big trip. I was 18. And I had a 250 Ducati Scrambler. And some of you will know what that is. Most of you won't. But think small two-stroke yeah. or small four-stroke. Sorry, not four two-stroke. Stroke. It's a yeah. four-stroke yeah. with a solo seat. Like a, think of V-seat, solo. And it was enough for one person. But 
the second person had about four inches to perch on. So mm. a friend of mine also had a 250 Ducati and it broke down in Prince George. For those of you who are not in British Columbia, Prince George is on a good day, nine to 10 hours drive from Vancouver. So he calls me up and says, you got to get my bike back to Vancouver. He's taking the bus. And I say, okay, yeah. And how am I going to do that? And I think about it. I say, okay, Bruce, you're going to jump on the back with me on my Ducati and we're going to ride up there and we're going to get it. <laughs> well, so here's two 18 year old guys completely clueless and so <laughs> clueless. We did not know that it was nine hours to Prince George. We had no idea. <laughs> so we, we set off in the morning. All we knew was it was up North and he'd written, ridden up there on his Ducati. So, okay, this is within reach. We set off in the morning and I put on my nice new prescription sunglasses and off we went. And Bruce is sitting on the back and complaining about every 20 minutes. He's got to get off and stretch his butt. But we finally made it. And don't forget, I'm 18 and I've got to fix the bike when we get there. And I, I know quite a bit about my Ducati because I had it apart completely three times so far and I've only had it two years. We get there, finally figure out what the problem was. It was just a bad connection. Okay, bang, we're off. We're all set to go. But it's nine o'clock at night now. It's pitch black and I've got prescription sunglasses on. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> what could I possibly go wrong? <laughs> oh, a few things could go wrong. <laughs> it's like the Blues Brothers, right? A pack of cigarettes. We've got a pack of cigarettes. Oh, yeah. Oh, it was guys. great fun. And um, Ducati's in those days, of course, it was six volt generator powered electrics, which at best of times, was somewhat better than two fireflies. I won't say three, but it was better than two. <laughs> and I can't see a thing, so I'm t I take my glasses off, and I can actually see. This is better. Problem is I have zero depth perception. <laughs> so driving along, come around a corner, and there's this metal mesh bridge, like three-inch square metal um, grid. And I discover what it's like to go completely sideways across the road on a Ducati. Mm. <laughs> Not a good thing. <laughs> but you wouldn't be so, going too fast on a 250, right? <laughs> uh, it would do an honest hundred. Oh, really? Yeah, really? yeah the, uh, the street, the, the performance version of it, the street version of it, um, clocked at 116. Wow. Ducatis were quick little beasties. So... Yeah, I wasn't doing 100, mind you. I was probably doing 50, but still. It and is it dark now is it when you're hitting this it's bridge? It's pitch black. It's 2 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> and I can't see. I've got no depth perception. So I'm just kind of driving blind trying to figure out where's the road. Uh, but to make a long story short, we did make it back. It took us over 24 hours. So 24 hours nonstop on a 250 Caddy on a tiny little seat. It's absolute agony, pitch black, can't see a thing. And that was my first adventure, my first trip. What did you feel like when you got back? Uh, I couldn't decide whether that was the dumbest thing I'd ever done or, wow, that was awesome. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. I want to know what your mate felt after sitting on the back of your bike for nine hours. Bloody hell. <laughs> yeah, it's called stupid. <laughs> <laughs> did you guys not think of stopping for the night? With what for money? Well, I, yeah. I wasn't thinking even hotel. I mean, just sleep somewhere. Just find a spot and sleep. Nah. Nah. He uh, had to be back at work next day. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. 24-hour ride and then go to work the next day. Hopefully, he wasn't doing yeah. anything um, that took a lot of brain power. Extremely dangerous, actually. He was, um, 
one of his jobs that I remember him telling me about was he would put a piece of metal in a machine, push a button, and it would stamp a washer out. And he'd have to do this as quick as he could. And he's sleeping on the job, mm. punching out washers. And that was the days before the little barrier that came down to protect your fingers from going in while the while the ram is coming down. Oh yeah, long before that. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, I did learn a few things from that. A little bit of preparation. Maybe you should actually look at a map. It'd be a good thing to have. Look at this GPS stuff. Look at a map and figure out how long it's going to get you take you to get there. Yeah, it was uh, it was an adventure. When was that, Grant? Like, well, what, what sort of, I mean, how many years are we talking ago? You're really going to make me admit how old well, I, I am? I'm thinking 20s or 30s, right? Something like that. You said you're 18. So maybe I, I should just move on with this <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing 1964. Uh, it was a 64 Ducati. Very good. Yeah. Wow. Two or three years after that. Put it in, <laughs> uh, let me think, 68, I guess. 67, 67. Brian's either good with trivia or close to that age. About stupid things we did on our bike. And we were working with Mike's one Sunday afternoon. We were putting a fence in his garden and he was one fence panel short. And it, all, the clo- all the shops close at 4, 4 p.m. on a Sunday in the UK. And we, the shop was about to close. So we jumped on a bike to get through the traffic and he was, I think I had a, an SS50 at the time, tiny little bike, and he had to buy a half fence panel. So it was six foot wide, but it was only three foot high. And he sat on the back of my bike with a fence panel. <laughs> <laughs> and I drove him back through the traffic. Because, like you said, we had work next day. So, you know, it couldn't, if we didn't do it that day, we wouldn't have been able to do it to the next weekend. And we wanted to get the fence finished. So, yeah, driving through traffic with a pillion with an old in a fence panel. <laughs> yeah. Hey, <laughs> so, do you ever makes- be- even being stuck on the road, you know, when you've run out of petrol, I was travelling with a mate once, and I had a 750 Honda at this stage, and he was on a Goldwing, and we're travelling at night, and a lot of service stations are shut. So I ran out of fuel. He had fuel. So here we are with two big heavy bikes on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere, and to, to get anywhere, we decided the best thing to do would be to take our belts off our pants and join them together and use it as a tow rope. <laughs> Damn near pulled the arms at the, at the sockets, but we, we we did that for about twenty kilometres to get to the nearest town. You do some crazy things. Oh yeah, <laughs> I was thinking of Graham's fence panel and thinking, you know, I've carried some crazy things too, like a motor, a car, a car, a six cylinder cylinder head with cast iron, which is was an experience, and then I carried a complete brand new in the box toilet on the back of the bike. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. Then I heard about Grand's fence panel. I'm not sure who's winning here. Because <laughs> it made me feel much better about carrying the propane tank on the back of my motorcycle. Because people really give you looks with that. But, uh, <laughs> a piece of cake, that. Yeah. Um, I have a friend who made his top box out of an old microwave and the looks that he gets is absolutely fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, that reminds me. That we were at a uh, rally in Denmark, I think. And somebody looked at the top box and said to Susan, what do you carry in the top box? She said, microwave. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody just kind of looked at me. Oh, what a good idea. 
<laughs> it would have been very funny if you actually had a microwave in there because you could just plug it into an inverter. That would have been great. There you go. <laughs> hey, carrying your propane tank on a bike nowadays, you get your lock, get yourself locked up for terrorism. I just had people look at me very strange, but I, I, that was the only way I had to get the propane tank at the time. So, and it seemed to work fine. It just strap it on and away you go. And it does kind of seem like a bit of a bomb thing, but anyway, Dan, did you have anything you want to throw in here? Um, I think it really just um, reinforcing uh, Sam's point about maps. I remember way, way back, I um, got hold of the the maps of Africa. There are Michelin maps of Africa. I don't know if you've seen the, the red fold out paper maps, but in three paper maps, the whole of Africa is covered with, and you think, well, there'll be no detail, but actually it's detailed down to filling stations or fuel, fuel points and uh, water sources. Um, and I, you know, as an exercise, just sort of planned a route down to Cape Town. Didn't ever do it, unfortunately, but planned a route, you know, working out where could I fuel up, where could, you know, how far were the uh, distances between them. And even that exercise alone was a, an adventure of sorts. And, you know, years on, I remember it. And, uh, yeah, the map is such a way to begin the, the adventure, even when we're maybe, uh, you know, it's, locked away at home as we are at the moment. Mm. Yeah. In the talk of maps, um, makes me think about nowadays it's tough to find a map. There, there was a few years back I was looking for a map. Um, I think we were into, into Quebec and I'm looking for a map and, and I went store to store asking. I couldn't get one. I eventually found one, but it was very difficult to find. They just said they don't stock them anymore. Nobody buys them. Well, when we did our first trip, you couldn't get maps of places like Iran um, some of the old Yugoslavian countries, we couldn't get maps unless you were actually in the country. They didn't have them anywhere else. And we found that the best thing was travellers would give you their maps. Mm-hmm. If they were going one way and you were going the other, uh, that's how we got through Iran with a, a young man we met in um, in Turkey called Alp. Who KTM, had, KTM Alp. KTM Alp was his um, email address, I think, and he gave us his map and said just shoot it back to me when you get back to Australia. So we bundled it up and posted it back home to him. So we, And we would have been stuffed without it. We didn't see a map but, anywhere but after that. that map was German. It was in yeah. German. Still. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, At least it had lines on it. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, I remember going through uh, Nicaragua during the Contra Wars. There were no road signs, no maps. There was nothing. We just kind of went south. I mean, they'd removed all the road signs because they were afraid that the uh, invaders would have it made it too easy for them. They didn't want to help the enemy, so they took all the road signs down. Hmm. So what are you doing? You're stopping and asking, or are you strictly going by direction? Um, stay on the main road and go south. Uh-huh. That was kind of it. That's all you could do. <laughs> all it roads works on to a <laughs> It kind of works on a sunny day, doesn't it? I mean, Brian mentioned that earlier. As soon as the sun goes, then um, it's a little bit more difficult. Well, that's what a compass is for, Sam. What? You've got to use a compass. You just, just got to remember to get off the bike. Yeah, just always ahead. remember to get off the bike and walk six feet away before you try and use a compass if you haven't mm-hmm. zeroed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. for sure. Well, let, let's um let's jump ahead to today, contemporary travel. Now let's let's talk pre-COVID. Okay, so what it was like before all this this nutty stuff happened in the last couple of months. What was motorcycle travel like for you guys up until now, um, Sam? I think the biggest thing that, and for me, is that technology has allowed us the opportunity to choose. Um, we can choose just going to maps, for example, again, maps or GPS. 
we can choose random accommodation hunts or get onto our overlander or onto hotel um, lookouts. We can choose whether to roll into a place with a problem and find a mechanic by word of mouth or we can get online and we can have a look for uh, whoever other people have re- recommended. And I think also we seem to be able to travel a little bit faster. And I'm, I'm conscious when I'm moving faster than I would have done before that in some ways it's a good thing because I've got more opportunities to get further in less time and it comes down to, again, having a better bike, perhaps, and better planning opportunities. But um, I do like the idea of just slowing down again. But it, that's what that's what I mean. Technology has allowed us the opportunity to choose what we do. But you know, Sam, I think it's put more pressure on as well. Mm-hmm. When we did our first trip, we had an email address and we had a web page. Occasionally, we would get internet access that we could actually use both of those. Uh, but if people didn't hear from us, they didn't get stressed. Whereas yep. now, if you haven't posted something on social media every 24 hours, people are, you know, sending you messages, where are you, how are you? It's just um, the pressure's on to keep I in touch rather, totally, than just, totally rather than just enjoy it and get in touch when you feel like it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I was very conscious when I've done trips in the past that, Each time I set it out on the trip, I could reinvent myself if I wanted to. I could be who I wanted to because I'd cut the umbilical cord with with home and everybody that I knew. I could go out and I could call myself Joe if I wanted to. Um, And I could be a bricklayer or I could be a milkman or I could be a whatever because I didn't have any connections with home. Mm -hmm. I could just be who I wanted to be at that particular time. And yeah, I, I liked that freedom to you know, to just be cut away from um, everything at home. Everything was then fresh. Mm, I think really that is point. true. You're truly in it then. I mean, we've, we've, we've gone over this again and again, but with, without the internet, you may have cold turkey for two or three days, but once you've got your the withdrawal, once it's out of your system, it is so liberating to not be doing, not be riding along thinking of a, Facebook post update, but to actually be in the moment and enjoying it. It's, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I see them at motor camp, and the first thing they do is look at the Wi Fi code and, yeah. and get on there and all stare at their phones. And yeah. I guess it is just the way it is now. But if only they knew how it was, it was, I really do. I, I know we're not supposed to say it was better in the old days, but it was better in the old days. <laughs> I knew it. You just couldn't resist, could you? You couldn't resist it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the thing is, though, like Sam said, you, you have the choice. I mean, we don't have to be online. No one does. And there's people who travel around and they're not online. They're not spending their time. I'm wondering if, if technology doesn't give you the opportunity to have less wasted time, like mistakes that might cost you something that um, maybe you couldn't afford or maybe you couldn't like money wise or, or maybe time wise. And, and I'm wondering if that sort of doesn't play into it. Like maybe we're able to get more out of things because of this technology, instead of always looking at it and saying it was better in the day, maybe that technology nowadays is, is really helping us in ways that we're not giving it credit for. I think there's no doubt about that. It's making it a, a lot of things a lot easier. You can plan a lot easier. You can figure out what you're doing, where you're going and everything else. Um, and I think from that point of view, it's great. And especially for those who are short on time and short on money, whatever, you have to be more efficient. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you lose that serendipity thing too mm. you don't just mm. some, if something goes wrong in the old days and there was no connection 
well, you'd figure it out and you'd meet people and they'd help you out. And at the end of it, you've actually accomplished something. And I think that's a huge thing that may be missing a little bit today in that you, in the old days, I hate to say this, but in the old days, (laughs) yes, (laughs) you had to really work it out yourself. It was you. It was your responsibility. It was you, your stuff, your bike, your whatever. And you had to figure it out somehow by working out with local people to solve the problem, whatever it was. It doesn't matter. But you had a sense of accomplishment. You did something. You felt better. Your confidence increased. You felt like, oh, that wasn't so bad. I did that. And yet I was panicking at the beginning, but I did it. I fixed it. And you'd feel much better and more confident next time something goes wrong. So I think not having things go wrong because you've planned to perfection is not necessarily a good thing. Even if it's just something minor like you took the wrong road, took you all day instead of an hour. I think there's always a a network of community to help you out, regardless of of your communication uh, levels. Um, just as a going off topic slightly, but as an example, last week I uh, wanted to get a, a lawnmower from a girlfriend, second-hand lawnmower. So we went to this shop. Now then, we don't have any second-hand ones, but an old guy who just was hanging out in the shop smoking cigarettes said, follow me. So he got on his bicycle and we followed him in the car to another shop, which I never knew existed, down this little back street. Oh, no, we haven't got any, but let us call someone. So they made a call. We waited for 10 minutes. And then a guy turned up on a moped, and then we followed him on his moped to his little garage where had about four or five lawnmowers, and we got to choose from one. <laughs> but that, that's what I love about Bulgaria. It has got a real east meet west. So it isn't simply jump on the internet or jump on eBay or Gumtree or whatever and find what's got one. You ask about, and people have the time. There is more time here to, <laughs> follow, <laughs> to follow bicycles to little garages and stuff and find stuff. And it's the, I think the same works when you're on the road. Without that technology, without that communication, when you simply have to stop to me, it happened to me in Mexico once, enjoyed the ride so much, went on to reserve, and there was nothing around. And in this little village, I stopped and pointed at my tank and uh, was led to this farmer who opened his barn, who got a container, which I hoped was a diesel, and poured it into my tank for me. <laughs> hey, Graham, you, you should look at Facebook Marketplace, and you can save all that hassle sitting around talking with people, waiting for scooters and everything. Take you right to the cellar. <laughs> oh, boring. <laughs> oh, anything but. <laughs> no, that, that, that's exactly right. We, we, we had that flat tyre coming back um, from Algeria on the trip, uh, a late night trip, and we um, uh, we were a little bit out of the town, so we, we rolled down into the town, found a motel, um, told him we had a flat tyre, got a bed for the night, and he said, oh, in the morning, the, um, the baker, I think it was, comes along. Uh, if you get the wheel out... And just leave it here. He'll tick it, he'll pick it up and he'll take it into the next town and they'll get it fixed. And um, the newspaper bloke will bring it back. He'll deliver it back and the tire will be fixed for you. <laughs> and that's what exactly what happened. Right? Wow. <laughs> Anyone else? Dan, you have anything? Um, I think, I mean, technology, as you say, is great. It's, it's you know, to, uh, we're limited in what we can do at the moment, but I'm thinking, uh, you know, I can look at my smartphone, I can find out about the weather, I can find out uh, some routes. But then the challenge is to sort of put the smartphone away, isn't it? Having worked out what I need to wear and where I'm going to go. 
and then you know smell the the roses or the you know honeysuckle whatever it is that's growing and, and enjoy the environment um so i think we can still get some of that adventure of the old days if we're able to put away the technology and one of the challenges there is not recording everything isn't it is not thinking we have to share this with other people but going on an adventure and deciding not to share it is perhaps the greatest step we can take towards truly enjoying it rather than having this burden of having to update um, blogs and videos and so on. Mm, yeah, or at least decide in, in advance what you're going to do. Is, is the trip about, you know, filming or shooting photographs or is the trip about your vacation adventure? Mm-hmm. Sam, you were going to say something? Yeah, I, I think that because we have the ability to plan as, as, as well as we do and as in-depth as we do, the risk is that um, we combine our dreams with the technology and we sort of create railway tracks for ourselves. And mm. once we're on those rail- railway tracks and rolling, the temptation is not to get off them, not to take mm. those side turnings and not to, to stop and, and enjoy the moments that the guys have been talking about. And that's the risk because that's when we stop soaking up the experiences that the technology has actually allowed us to get to. Um, we don't necessarily get lost quite so often, so we can focus on what we want to see and not the random. But actually, focusing on the random is kind of nice as well as being able to focus on what we want to see. I think it's a case of taking the best of the new and the best of the old and then just being yourself, following your passion. In Thailand, there's um, a saying which I, I think sums up the connection between the early days way of traveling and now. And that phrase is um, same, same, but different. Mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, on our first trip, we were going to do a lot of video, weren't we, Shirley? And, nah. and um, you were. I, yeah, well, <laughs> Shirley, being, being from a television background, she said, no, we're not doing that. No way. And uh, she made the right call. That's right. Too much, be, way too much like hard work. If you're going to do it properly... <clears throat> And you're going to need all those little cutaway shots and, you know, yeah. it's just got too hard. That up. Yeah. And and then then you've got to think about who's going to want to watch it when you get home and when are you ever going to edit it and it all just – there are some people who really enjoy it and but then you tend to watch your whole holiday through a viewfinder. And exactly. that's yeah. – you know – you can see all sorts of things with peripheral vision using your eyes and uh, the hard drive that we have in our head is just, our memory is just fabulous. So, mind you, I take lots of photographs, but, you know, you take three or four shots and then stand and enjoy the view and it's, it's the way to do it, for us anyway. I think that that's the key, isn't it? Because you, you, it's very easy to get into the habit of seeing something that looks absolutely fantastic and you've seen it through a, a mental viewfinder that's strapped to the front of your head. And you, you stop, you take the photograph and you climb back on your bike and you're gone again. But what about just standing and soaking it up and, and feeling the breeze and smelling the smells and everything else that really goes to make that, that situation mm. that you've just been admiring? There was this canyon in, in Mongolia and I was riding on my own and it was a beautiful canyon and I stopped the bike and I went to this little bridge and I sat and I looked down the canyon and I just sat there. And whilst I was there, this little minibus turned up, about 15 people bundled out the minibus, all noisy, taking photos, dropping their rubbish back in the minibus and they went. It was just this 
five minutes of chaos and they disappeared again. And maybe they were happy, maybe they enjoyed it, maybe they were keen to get onto the next bit so they could infest the next area. But for me, it was just this, the tranquility of it was was the moment, not not recording of it, but just the experience of it, watching the shadows drift across from the clouds and that. It, it was a wonderful moment, I think made even better by the brief invasion, because I realised even more what they missed and what I was getting. Yeah, fine. Yeah. That's nice. I like that. Yeah. yeah. We found the same thing in Africa when we were on safari. We, we went out, we rented a vehicle uh, so that we could drive around in the game park. And we just took our time and we'd go to a watering hole and we'd sit there and we'd wait and watch. And eventually some animals would arrive and they'd wander around. And then the uh, game, the tourist bus would arrive and the animals would quickly disappear. Tourists would get the cameras out, take a bunch of pictures, 15, 20 minutes tops, and they were gone. And then the animals would come back. That was taking your time and just staying and enjoying the moment and being in the moment. I mean, I could talk about uh, a mountaintop on Kilauea and um, Ayers Rock and a few other places I can think of that just popped to mind where just stop, arrive, nobody else around, relax, take a deep breath and breathe in the moment and become part of it. And those memories stick with you like glue. Yes, you're going to take a few pictures, but being in the moment is what matters. Definitely. Mm. Sometimes it's about the timing too. Um, There were a few places we really wanted to see at different times and you knew they were tourist traps. So we would either go really early in the morning before the tourist buses arrived or late in the afternoon after they've all gone. So you could enjoy the things that, without the intrusion of a million people. When I was in um, Kenya, oh, I seem to be stuck on Kenya this morning. Oh, well, that's all right. I don't <laughs> mind being stuck in Kenya. Um, wanted to go into the Masai Mara, um, the, the game park. But the problem was the cost of being in there for a day was about the equivalent of, of a month's travel money for me. And I was I was really tossing up hard over this decision do do i do i go in and just spend the money because of the access to all of those wild animals and everything and i may never get this opportunity again and in the end i decided well actually no the best thing to do is um to be aware of something quite simple and that is the animals don't know where the edges of the game reserve are so why don't i get together with a bunch of other people rent a four by four um find ourselves a local guide and we found this great guy he was a maasai um all the robes, everything, and we'll just go and meander around the bush a little bit outside of the park. And I tell you what, we were meeting people at the end of the day who hadn't seen hardly anything. And we'd seen lions and leopards and giraffes and just just the full spread. Absolutely fantastic because we were away from the, the busy, buzzy um, tourist zone inside the park. Ah, very nice. You made your own tour. Yeah, exactly. It was great. And we had, because we weren't on tour, as it were, um, we could just literally just stop. And animals would come to us almost. And yeah, fantastic. Taking time. That's one of the beauties of travel, isn't it? And being in charge of your own day rather than being on a tour. 
like Sam was saying, when you can travel independently, you can go off peak, be there in the evening and the morning. That that's it doesn't even matter whether you're on a bicycle or a four by four, but the independent travel aspect gives you the choice and that's the wonderful thing. You know, I respect everybody who gets out of their own country and goes and explores in other countries in whatever way they possibly can. But I love it when I see somebody who discovers independent travel. It's almost like watching a, a wilting flower suddenly being given water and coming to life. And you just think, yeah, that's what it's about. Mm. Well, um, now I think we, we're, we're sort of straying from our, our topic line a little bit here, which is great because it's been great stories. But let's jump back and, and attack this the COVID-19 thing that, that we've all had to deal with. We only want to touch on this briefly, but so obviously there, there probably isn't a person on earth that hasn't been affected by this COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and like I said, I don't want to focus on it, but um, it's causing us all problems and making things difficult. I think we all understand that. And, and I think we've all been blindsided by it as well. I, I doubt there's anyone who you know predicted what we're having to deal with. Any comments? Does anyone have any comments just on the on the current state of things? Not the future, because we're going to talk about that afterwards, but sort of the current state of things. Well, I think what you're saying about being blindsided, Jim, um, I have to admit that in late February, we were discussing this at home and what this was going to do to our planned June 30 departure on the Big Bird for the Northern Hemisphere. Mm -hmm. And I said to Brian, for God's sake, I don't know what you're worried about. It'll all be over by then. We'll be right. (laughs) (laughs) They are known as famous last words (laughs) because clearly uh, it is not right. I don't know when we will be leaving Australia again. You're saying I was right. Oh, yes. All right. Once, once, once. (laughs) (laughs) He's allowed one. Quick. I I was was getting a bit worried about you, though. You were slow off the march, but I'm glad you got that. (laughs) I'm basking in this glory, guys. (laughs) Get a (laughs) (laughs) T-shirt. Brian, I hope somebody recorded that for you, mate. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, mate. (laughs) This one, this one's going into the into the pool room. Oh, right, oh, right. Shirley, <laughs> <laughs> you're feeling ganged up on now. <laughs> and there was you just being honest. I oh, know that'll be the last time that'll happen. <laughs> <laughs> I had plans to, to, you know, we're going to walk Hadrian's Wall. We're going to come down and see Sam. We might even call in and see Dan and yeah. say good day and thanks very much and all that sort of stuff. And and uh, it's all gone pear shaped. Mm-hmm. But you know. Having said that, um, being locked up like we are, you know, all my bikes have been tinkered with and played with and the valves have been tickled with an inch of their lives and and um, a lot of planning has gone into a few things. And talking about the old day, old school type riding, I'm planning a ride up the Darling River, but right on the river. So it's a dirt ride for about oh, six, 700 kilometres up there. Oh, nice. So um, I'm going to take my old trail bike. Uh, which is kickstart only, which will probably I'll end up with one leg a lot bigger than the other, but um, yeah, just just a, a, a swag on the back and maybe a couple of mates, and we'll take off and do a ride like that, which is really going back to the old days. Nice. Yeah. So that's that's really come from this COVID nineteen lockdown. Yes, it's, yeah. yes. Just talking to a few friends, and we thought, oh, you know, wouldn't it just be great? And you know, we won't get out of lockdown until it's winter time. Well, that means we've got to go north. It's going to be cold. It'll be freezing cold at night time, but the days will be beautiful and there's water coming down the Darling River, so why not? All these plans were hatched over drinks. We have Friday night drinks with our friends on Skype. 
Oh, nice. And, and these plans were hatched towards the latter part of well, Friday Night Drinks. Friday Night Drink has, be, has become Frock Up Friday, so everybody has to get dressed up. So our first night I wore a dinner suit. <laughs> and, she, <laughs> and, we, and we had our drinks and uh, discuss um, what we're going to do when we finally break out. So there you go. And as, as soon as they started talking about this trip, all the um, wives and partners said, gee, please go for this trip. Not that it hasn't been lovely having you around the house 24 hours a day, seven <laughs> days a week for the last seven weeks. <laughs> so I was just going to say, I think, you know, there are many benefits that this period has given us around um, exercising perhaps more and differently and exploring our local area and realising that even on our doorstep, there are uh, a micro adventures to be had. Um, I, I did a trip just last weekend called The Long Way Up the Garden, um, which was <laughs> taking the bike out of the garage, loading it up, drove to the top of the garden. In fact, I couldn't really drive there. It's not that far. But um, stung a hammock between a couple of trees, spent the night there, and it was an amazing night. And actually, I discovered there, you know, the wildlife that comes in and out of my own garden in the night that I had no idea about and was really aware of it. And so there's adventure to be had really as close to home as that. Um, which perhaps we've discovered from this. It's great to go further when we can, but while we can't, it doesn't mean to say that we can't take adventures, and we can. Those people who do go and film the adventures, you know, I've discovered one or two decent YouTube channels, you know, where people have filmed, made beautiful films of their, their travels, and you can kind of piggyback their journey as well. So it's, um, I think there have been some benefits to this period. Mm. I totally agree. And I think that's an, a really nice way of putting it. There's, there's a chap, um, that I've met online called Steve. God, that came out wrong, didn't it? Anyway, let's move on rapidly. Um, <laughs> well, it's brought in a lot of things this lockdown, hasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> this guy, Steve and I, you know, he's he's got stuck in Morocco. So he's in lockdown in Morocco. And we've, we've just been having a bit of a chat um, as he's been going through this. And we came up with, um, with, with this thought. And I, I wrote it down because I really liked it, this. And... We can't think of ourselves as victims in the circumstances. The ideology, the ideology to follow is whatever life throws at you, you just find another way to achieve what you want. Mm. Yeah. yeah, good. It just works, doesn't it? And, yeah. and Dan's trip up the garden, that slots in with that absolutely perfectly. Um, it is such a positive way to deal with everything that's going on. Well, it's easy to get paralyzed, isn't it? It's easy to look at it and, and feel down about it look at all your plans and things that have been messed up by it, all those things, not to mention the money aspect of it and get down on it. But yeah, it's important to find those little nuggets. There, there's always a, there's always that silver lining, I guess. Yeah. I'm the first guy to promote international travel as a way to meet people and, and learn about other cultures. But maybe this year and maybe even next year is the year that we explore our own countries and, and look at them with fresh eyes. Um, culture in addition to exploring areas that you've never been to before, you can learn about other cultures in your own country. Mm. And also saying about different cultures, my elderly neighbours are rubbing their hands together. This is the year they're going to teach Graham how to grow tomatoes. This is the year they're going to, <laughs> they're going to um, show me how to do rakia. And they, they, they've, and it's really obvious when I see them that they've been given this a lot of thought. Graham's not going to be going anywhere this year. He's got no excuses. You know, they come over with sticks to hold up the tomato plants and tie it up and give me the seedlings. And they so want me to 
not have excuses and to, and to get on with it. So it is exploring the the, the different cultures within my village because I'm a foreigner. I'm in, I'm an immigrant, and they're really wanting me to to teach me the ways. And uh, so that's really fun to see that. And I don't have an excuse because I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> Make the most <laughs> of it, Graham. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've always felt um, that we are so isolated in Australia, being so far from everywhere. And anytime you want to go somewhere, you've got to cost um, factor in the cost of getting to where you want to go. But at the moment, I'm kind of glad that we live in Australia because it was so easy for us to put the shutters up and protect ourselves. You know, when I look at friends overseas like, you know, all of you, Northern Hemisphere people, and what you're going through and compare it with what we're going through, which is bloody inconvenient for Brian not being able to get out on the bike and inconvenient for me having to put up with him whinging, um, that... Really, in the scheme of things, we've been blessed down here, and I really feel for for our friends who are yet yeah, locked down. We're all locked down, but who have a, a real risk of you know if you go out that you're going to get very sick, whereas that risk isn't quite as extreme here. Yeah, mm-hmm. some countries have handled the situation very well. Some have been fortunate because of their circumstances, and some countries just haven't paid attention. Um, and I'm seeing that spread from people who are, um, were traveling when everything started to get locked down. Um, mm-hmm. There are some people that are having to stay in hotels because they're not allowed to camp anymore or it's just too inconvenient to be, to be camping. You know, people who were wild camping as much as they possibly could are now paying the cost of hotels and where they were shopping in cheap local markets straight from the, the farmers. Now they're having to buy their food in supermarkets. And all the whole business about visa extensions and the costs of that and vehicle extensions, you know, permit extensions, et cetera, et cetera. There are quite a lot more costs for people out there. And I, I yeah. fear that some of the countries are going to become um, a little bit more isolated and um, they'll live in fear of others even more than, than too many do now. Mm. And I do get upset when I'm see, hearing sort of blanket racist <laughs> remarks from people who haven't had first-hand experience of those countries. It's it's so wrong. And I am hearing tales of um, locals being less welcoming to strangers, as in they're suspicious. Yeah. So in some places I'm hearing and that the locals are blaming them for the, the travellers right. for bringing the bug. Yeah, yeah they're right. nervous. They're nervous, Sam. It's a, it's a really different world that we're living yeah. in now. And yep. certainly um, Australia has been uh, behaving uh, quite appallingly to some of our um, Chinese Australian residents yep. and, and uh, members of our community, and it's embarrassing. When you see it on the news, it's annoying and, and embarrassing that people that are just wonderful members of our community are being treated up really badly. Yeah. We, we've, we've had that in the UK too. And when all of this started kicking off, there were people um, from, a, from East Asia who were already straight away wearing face masks. You know, the logic is that they've had experience of pandemic hitting much, much harder over there. So they were straight on with the face masks. And people were throwing insults at them in the streets and laughing at them and so on. And I hated that people here were doing that. These folks had the right to do that. And my goodness, have they been proved right. I do fear um, an increase in, in xenophobia. And we all have to understand that one of the reasons why people in local areas may be more suspicious to us is not only the, 
the, the, the aspects that it may well be that we people who have enough money to be moving around from one country to the next actually are the people that, spe- that, that are helping to spread this. But it's also mm. that many of the local people have no money for medical cover. So if one of them or their family or anybody else gets sick, they're stuffed. And mm-hmm. we've got to pay attention to that. Well, yeah, let, let's, that's, let's that's, save that's the rest. Same. Let, let, let's save the rest for, for talking about the, the future because I can see we're sort of going into that now. I want to take a break first. And then we're going to come back. We're going to talk about uh, predicting, not not really predicting the future, but talking about sort of what we see, the you know, the possibilities that there are. And I'm sure you guys have ideas of, of thought of, about things. Um, that uh, in ways that you think that the future may change for motorcycle travel. So we'll come back to that. But first, we're going to take a break because this episode is sponsored by Fresh Tracks. Now, Dan, since I have you here, I'm not going to I'm not going to do the ad like I would normally do it. I'm going to ask you about Fresh Tracks. So, um, just very quickly, a rundown on what Fresh Tracks is. Well, um, yeah, so the main part of the business is, we, we say facilitating adventurous conversations, and that is when people, when in the back, back in the days when people could leave their offices or even went into their offices and they could go out and, uh, and spend some time as, um, as a business team, um, you know, catching up with each other out of, out of work, we would get involved. So whether that's team building or conferences or way days, those sorts of things, that's where we would facilitate those, um, often with a, an adventurous activity thrown in and in some form. So, um. Um, that's the, the basically the, the business is about. Um, yeah, so that's on, obviously on pause to some degree at the moment, but we're finding um, part of my work is helping businesses work their way through this. And so it's um, working with the senior teams around how to how to survive or adapt and often adapting massively to what's going to be a very different world for them in the future. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting space to be in and hopefully one where we can help people on the next part of their journey. And I think running a business is very much like um, being part of a, an adventure that you need to have as a beginning point, you're not quite sure where the ending is, and we have to navigate our way there. So um, it's a, yeah, yeah. It, whether it's a business or a trip, there's an adventure to be had, and and uh, we try and get help people through that. Yeah, I guess when we think of um, when we think of um, team building, you often think of things that you do together, obviously, um, mm. with, with everyone all working together, and often outdoors things. But you can still do that, can't you? You just talk about ways to adapt now in the the way things are changing. You probably are already working on ways that you can do it even in a virtual sense. To some degree, but I, actually, in my opinion, you know, there's not a lot. You, 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 it's not the same virtually as being together. But I think that does create a space when we can start getting together to ensure that we do it well. You know, don't just throw people back together and, and hope that it all works out, but to really plan and think, well, what are we going to do together? Because it's going to be quite strange when we first come together, having been remotely connected for what was likely to be several months. So um, we're not pretending you can, can you know, that, that a, a video conference can be as good as being face-to-face. In fact, we're saying, you know, just just remember that when we do come face-to-face, invest some thought into how we're going to do that and make it work. Mm, right. Um, freshtracks.co.uk is a website. Now what we're, what we're interested in for, for riders is your adventure space. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So um, our, our base location is an old farm between London and Cambridge, just north of London. And uh, we've got not a huge amount of outdoor space here, but um, we did some building work a few years ago and it's very expensive to get rid of muck, you know, dirt from when you do building work. So, um, 
instead we we made some mounds and some humps and bumps and we created a, a sort of off-road training area here um or practice area i think it's not really a training area but a practice area so people can you know practice hill climbs and descents um you know log uh, crossing logs those sort of things and things that we might learn about from having been on courses or, or read books and um and now there's some great video courses around around well, this is a good place to come and practice that so that's something I've done as a bit of fun on the side for my own benefit, firstly, and then thinking, well, if others, if I can use it, maybe others can come and share that. And also here we've got some accommodation too, so there's some um, some some very comfortable um, self-catering um, buildings that can be used if people want to come here for a few days break. And it's the kind of place you could bring the family or bring friends, and even if they weren't into biking, they could be here and uh, um, and have a, a great few days in the countryside. So you can camp there, and as well, you have accommodations. Yeah, and we've got a bit of space if people want to just camp down. That's fine. Yeah, we're very happy for people just to pop up a tent or hammock and uh, um, and, and be here for that as well. Wow, very yeah. nice. And then um, we're connected to a few farms nearby, so I'm hoping when things improve, we can expand the area somewhat and uh, and give people some yeah um, some places they can really go and feel quite remote without being very far away from the the big cities. Nice, oh, very cool. And the the accommodations, the the one I'm trying to think of the name. It's it's um, like an A-frame, isn't it? Yeah, we've got a, a little camping cabin. Yeah, um, we call it a Toblerone. I don't know if you guys will have a Toblerone bar where you have a chocolate bar. We, we have a Toblerone, <laughs> but you you said to me before it was something like like it's it's similar to cabins you'd find on a trail, and you, you called them something. I don't know what it's called now. Uh, yeah, in um in the north of England in Scotland, there are things called bothies, which is it's a great system um, for hikers predominantly, but um, and they're old. Um, they we use as cottages, I guess, for farm workers, but they're they're completely off grid, so they a lot of them don't. In fact, I think only one of the there are several hundred, and only one of them has any kind of uh, sanitation. So most of them have got a bit of a fireplace, and you can go there. So it yeah, you know, it's that sort of idea where people could. You know, it's a pretty bare space, but it is dry and, and clean, and people can come in and roll out their roll mat and their, their bag and sleep in there. So yeah, we've got a, one of those here as well. Now the website is freshtracks.co.uk forward slash adventure space and you need to put in that forward slash adventure space to uh, to come to that page that's not on your main menu is it no because this is a bit of a side hobby right. for me really it's um, it's hidden away a bit but um but yeah we we tell people it isn't ar where it is okay and we have the link in the show notes as well um so freshtracks.co.uk forward slash adventure space Thank you, Dan, and we certainly appreciate um, you sponsoring Adventure Rider Radio Raw. That's uh, that is a, a huge thing for us. So thank you for that. Too right. Yes. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Yep. I hope to say it's my daughter's birthday today, and I think she's just woken up. Oh, I've, I've just been beckoned out, so I'm going to have to go. I'm afraid. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, perfect. Come up. Okay. Okay. Thanks, thanks, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Okay. So now talking about the future of motor tra- moto travel. Um, Taking all this into consideration that we've talked about, we've talked about the past, what it was like, changes in contemporary pre-COVID, and certainly um, our a bit of our experience with COVID nineteen. What does motorcycle travel look like to you guys? Do you think in the coming year, um, maybe then two years, and, and then five years? I mean, the the questions that that, that we came up with were the thought processes, the things to think about were. What will crowded countries be like to visit, for instance? Um, what will borders be like? What will officials be like to deal with? And Sam, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, you alluded to it and started to talk about it. What are people going to be like in other countries? Are they going to be as willing to help strangers as they have been till now? 
or are they going to start to feel like uh, it's very common for people uh, to go into a country and say that everyone in that country says the people in the next country are crooks and they're terrible and they're dangerous. Is that going to be the attitude for now for foreigners? Uh, these are all questions that we can talk about with um, the future and, and what we're sitting at right now. Sam? I think the first thing is that um, I think that um, over the, the next year or so, people will come back to being as quick to offer help as they have been in, in past years. And I think that they will be accepting moto travellers back into their homes because I think that things will calm down with the amount of knowledge um, that starts to go around. Part of the problem that there is around the world at the moment is the amount of confusion, differing reports and different attitudes and different ways of dealing with the situation. I think that if people um, travel with respect to the local people, then it'll get to the stage that they're welcoming um, back again. I do wonder whether there's going to be some sort of quarantine when you um, arrive in a new country or whether it's going to change to the extent that before you're allowed into the next country, you have to go and be tested and get a certificate that you can roll into the new country saying that you, know, you are free of the virus. Um, and I think when those sorts of things start to happen, then it could well be that things will relax. And I hope it does, because one of the th Mark Twain said, um, and we all know this quote, but it, it bears repeating, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry and narrow-minded. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men's and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of earth all in one's lifetime. And that's just so true. And I really, really hope that this doesn't change because the world is a much better place for people getting out and about and exploring and meeting and greeting and learning. And yeah, um, we've got to treat the world with even more respect and we've got to treat the people in the countries that we're traveling in with even more respect. And hopefully as we go through the coming years, things will, um, will chill out and get back to the way they have been. I think we are going to see a change. Um, you were saying, Sam, about being tested before you're allowed into a country. Mm. I just wonder if there is ever a vaccine for this virus that it will become like the yellow fever where you need yeah. to have a certificate to show yeah. that you've had the vaccine. Yeah, well, there's, there's been talk about that, hasn't there? Um, uh, there's been quite yeah. a bit of talk about that. I'm a little bit more pessimistic than Sam. I, I think there will not be borders open um, for people to, to go across country for quite some time and, and until there's a vaccine that um, uh, immunises uh, people. I, I, I really think things are going to be really tight for at least a year. And as things slowly open up, I think that we'll be right about um, everyone will need a certificate to show that they've, they've had the, the vaccine. But if you, have it, if you get tested and it tests negative – you may well be positive for two weeks, you know. It, mm -hmm. You know, you, you, you've got a two-week – anyone that comes into Australia is in quarantine for two weeks. That is not going to change in the short term until they have a vaccine. And that's So that's going to really curtail people's travel. Yeah, especially if you're going through, well, Europe or, or South America or something where you've got a lot of countries close together. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And who's going to want to get on an airplane soon too? Mm -hmm. Not me. Well, yeah, they, no, they no, don't have either. a, there's no vaccine for SARS. So, I mean, no. all these years later. Yes, but SARS was quite a different virus. It wasn't nearly yes. as um, virulent. 
Well, I know. And th- that's my point, though. I mean, they didn't find a vaccine. They didn't make a vaccine for SARS. And, and now we've got COVID-19, which is much more aggressive from everything they're telling us uh, and, and much more fatal. And we don't know. I mean, there's talk of a, of a vaccine in a year or a year and a half or two years, but we don't really know. No, but I think there's a lot more effort gone into or going to go into uh, COVID-19 than there ever did in SARS. That yeah. was my point. Yeah, I think you're right. So the, the difference in effort is going to make a huge difference. Um, the reality is that if we don't have a vaccine, the world will be a very different place for a very long time. So yeah. every country is working extremely hard and spending buckets of money on it. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be that, that countries are beginning to start to work together on creating an international plan and that is based around the vaccine isn't it yes people are beginning to work more together and that's one of the reasons why i feel a bit more positive because i think human beings are blooming smart people we do an awful lot of really really dumb things and perhaps that's one of the reasons why this is all started in the first place but people are working together and we've got a lot of brain power and a lot of ability and yeah, I, I'm, I'm really hopeful for what's going to happen next. But I think, as that old Thai says, as Thai saying said, same, same, but different. Yeah, I, I really hope you're right, Sam. I really do. But I, I have my doubts. You know, they're developing a vaccine now. And I know, you know, there's a Queensland University dealing with someone in Oxford and they're all doing all sorts of things, which is fantastic. But it will take over 18 months to vaccinate sufficiently to see the end of this. That's what I've been reading. And I mean, that's a long time. What do you mean? You you need to administer the vaccine after it's been, it's been made? To make it, to to make make it and administer administer it. Yes, that's right. Because I mean, it's got to be tested and most places test things like vaccines for at least a year um, before um, they're released. And they've short circuited that already. Have they? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. But as Grant was saying, even if they create a vaccine, we don't know whether it will have long-term um, effects or whether you'll have to have it every year. There's it's, there's so many unknowns with this. Um, it will be a very different travelling environment for a while to come. But on the good side, yeah, though, I, if they do come up with a vaccine in, in, you know, three, four years down the road sort of thing, I mean, if they come up with it now and then three or four years down the road, it'll just be an, another thing that you need to go travel like you do now, right? Yeah, just yeah be another, that's another right. Thing to check like out. The yellow, yeah, like yellow yeah. fever. Yeah. And for those people who love trivia, remember 2020 will be the answer to so many questions in pub <laughs> trivia quizzes. So- <laughs> I just got that. Okay. Well, like I was talking about earlier, I think we need to do in the meantime, we need to keep ourselves engaged and traveling. And if you're doing nothing else, you're exploring your own country. I mean, I remember when we left on our trip in 1987, my mother said to us almost tearfully, why don't you explore your own country first? It's a big country. Well, yeah, but we can explore that when we're 80 in a motorhome if we have to. The other ones are a little harder, but maybe this is that 80 and wait a minute, I'm not, I'm, I'm not 80. Are you getting a motorhome? Is that what you're trying to tell us? I'm not getting a motorhome. Really slim bed Yes, I sort of stepped in that, didn't I? Yeah, we with, with, with of course the compartments at the back, so you can carry your motorcycle. You know, you've got instant credibility <laughs> with that ground. Well, we've actually looked at that and thought about it and thought, nah, 
not yet, but maybe someday <laughs> there will be a time when there is a motorhome with a motorcycle stuck in the back somewhere. <laughs> there are some really <laughs> cool ones to do it. Oh, I know. <laughs> if you want to spend a lot of money. You can have a sister website grant called Horizons Limited. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea. I like it. I'll, I'll re be reserving that URL real quick. <laughs> I'm going to do it first. Going to do it first. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what I was going to say, well, you can check in with the cultures in your own country and practice your travel, your meeting people and figuring out and sorting out your problems and doing like Brian's doing and going off into the woods. I've got a DRZ 400 now. I'm going to go off and I'm going to explore the Trans-Canada Trail. Just do some local stuff. Get out mm -hmm. and, and do some local riding. Practice your dirt skills. Practice, make sure your gear is perfect and you've figured out exactly what you actually need instead of uh, this old saying we've heard so many times, I just sent in another box of expensive shit home that I thought I needed and I didn't. Sure, well, maybe now you can just stop. take it home, <laughs> dump it off. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're only doing a short trip. That's right. Just go back or, home. Or, or Susan's microwave. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I think it's, it's just a matter of adjusting your thinking. And um, like Dan was saying, micro-adventures. We've been using that phrase for quite a long time now. It's plan a micro-adventure. You know, we can't all do a big international round-the-world trip every weekend. It's, it's just too hard. So do a micro-adventure. Get away for the weekend. Take a couple of days off in the middle of the week and go out somewhere where it's beautiful and different and somewhere else. Visit a new village. Visit a new town. Check out a new part of the world somewhere that you haven't been. I know. I mean, I live in British Columbia and I've lived here most of my life. Probably been out of the country for 30 years, but that's okay. I've still been here for a long time. And there's all kinds of places I haven't seen. I know that. So well, I'm going to get out and do that. Mm -hmm. You know, I stay with some friends in the Czech Republic and uh, they were so informed about their country's history. Um, going back beyond the Second World War to different uh, immigrants that came over at different periods of their time. And they related that to signs, old quarries, various sites around where they lived. It was wonderful. The conversation, they all had this really extensive knowledge of the history, where they came from and why it is. And history and geography are quite related. So as opposed, as you're saying, Grant, to doing the long distances, you can stay put and go back in time and see why this is like, like it is and and do your research more. I don't know how the internet completely, but you can then sort of do a little bit of research on history, then go and see that place, see why it became. And, uh, and like you say, learn more about your country. I was desperately ignorant on, on history because it was made so boring at school. And oh, we've got right. here in Hungary, got an illustrious history from Ottoman uh, Empire invasion to the Soviet uh, occupation years. So there's so much to know, and it's the more informed you are, the more interested you become, you know? Just a little tidbit for you talking about history being boring in school. I had a history teacher whose method was to fill four blackboards with his writing of what we were supposed to learn, and there were blanks every once in a while. And you'd walk in, and you'd start copying it. That was the school class. That was <laughs> it. That was how we learned history. How riveting. Oh, yeah, not exactly inspiring. <laughs> oh, Stunning. Anyway, yeah. And what's but, a blackboard anyway? 
Um, those things that they write on with chalk. I know what's chalk. I know. Now they had blackboards, of course, when I was in school as well. Tim, you're going to tell everybody that you were just 26 now, aren't you? To get away with yes. something like that. <laughs> no, they, I but definitely grew up fun, with blackboards. I'm going to throw out a challenge here for everybody. We're talking about micro adventures, talking about history, talking about cool places to go in your own country, your own area. Well, horizonsunlimited.com slash destinations is a place you can go where you can find all kinds of interesting places to go and see. Uh, there's about a thousand places in there now that are on or should be on every motorcycle traveler's bucket list. The idea is that if you're local, you know someplace cool like, okay, I'm in Vancouver. I should be writing about Gastown because I know Gastown isn't in there. So I better get up figure out the history of Gastown, what's the story, what's it all about, what is it, why is it, where is it, and put it into destinations. And somebody, Graham's going to say, what's Gastown? And I'll say, that's what's what Gastown? <laughs> very good, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> so Graham's going to see Gastown on the, on the page for Vancouver, and he's going to say, oh, I need to do that. So click, and it's in your private book bookmark list. And when you've got your trip in Canada and all the places you want to see figured out, click another button and you get a GPX file with all those points on it. Hmm. Except that, that Graham, like it's Graham's not going to come to Canada right now because he's Sorry, not, not going to be allowed to. GPS either. <laughs> That's true. Somebody else will. Somebody will want to use GPS. Anyway, the idea is to get as many cool places that motorcycle travelers might want to go to. And, and that's not just the, the main tourist attractions. We're talking um, interesting things, interesting places, the, the campsite in the middle of nowhere, the repair shop, um, you know, and the repair shop with five lawnmowers in Bulgaria in some little town somewhere, somewhere. I have no idea. I've heard of that. <laughs> All these cool places, they should be in destinations. Mm. So here's your challenge is to get out there and get around your own little place get the coordinates, get some information, bung it in there. Let's all do that while we're stuck in our own country and learn about our own history and what's interesting, what's cool places. And along those lines, um, theme trips are a great thing to do. You know, you, you can certainly do this no matter where you live. Pick a theme, you know, whether it's visit all the parks or, or whatever. I mean, it can be anything. Look for the, the biggest ball of string or all those, you know, silly uh, roadside attractions that are built just to make a roadside attraction. There's so many different ways that you can make an adventure out of not going very far from your home. I mean, and, and that you don't have to cross your country for it either. Well, you guys have been talking, um, I've been sitting here thinking about the UK. What a tiny um, group of islands this is, but there is so much to see here. Oh, yeah. And uh, I don't know whether any of you guys have read Ted Simon's book, um, Rolling Through the Isles, but I wonder whether sales of that are suddenly going to go pang because, of course, he talks about so much of the, the British Isles and the history and his connection and so on with it. Um, I must dig my copy out and read it again. And Bill Bryson did a book, Notes from a Small Island. I learned yeah. about my country from that American. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a good book, although he got it completely wrong about Exeter. I'm still pissed off with him for that. Bill Bryson's... Bill Bryson came to Australia for the Melbourne Writers' Festival and he was hugely popular and at the Melbourne Town Hall, which is probably a thousand-seat venue, he walked onto stage and said... I was asked to do a slideshow. So here we go. And he clicked a button 
and up on the screen came a picture of a slippery dip in a park. He said, this is the slide in the park at the bottom of my street. Click. This is the slide in the park around the corner from where my mother lives. And he did (laughs) three or four minutes of pictures of children's playground equipment. (laughs) I love it. That's brilliant. Um, but we've got a, a friend. He does see thing at Bath as well, doesn't he? Oh yeah. If, 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 For you, those... if you go into Bath, he does the narrative of, of you going through that, those house. beautiful old bathhouse ruins you have over there, Sam. And yep. you can either choose the staid professor uh, talk, or you can choose the Bill Bryson one, where he talks about. Oh, this would be the bath where the voluptuous women would be laying around yes, beside you, peeling grapes for you. Well, this you still get the history like you do when you read his book, The Body or the Home, but yeah. uh, get it with a Bill Bryson slant, which is interesting. Very uh, Shirley, I still want to have the courage to stand up on stage one time and say, Well, I've been invited to do a, a slideshow and to reach into my back pocket and pull out a slide and hold it up in the air and say, now this is a picture of me riding naked up through Southern Alaska and, and throw it away. And hold up another slide and this is it. <laughs> or just pass them around, Sam. Just hand them to him. Just just look at this and just pass it to the next person. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Anyway, back to the, um, the the topic at hand. Anyone else for, you know, vision of, of what the future is going to look like for motorcycle travel? Oh, boy. I think in the short term, we've sort of discussed it after COVID-19, but long term, long term. I think in the short term, for some people, it's going to be getting out of where they are now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of people decided to stay put. Well, yeah, there's a lot of people who didn't didn't leave where they were and try and get oh. home and they're now stranded. Yeah. So yeah. They thought it was only going to be a couple of weeks. A couple yeah. of weeks lockdown yeah. would be all over. Nope, didn't work out like that. I've been reading quite a bit from people who were saying things like, you know, if if I had caught the repatriation flight home, um, I would have had to leave my bike and I had nowhere safe to leave it. I would have had no idea what was going to happen to it. So basically, I would have to ride it off. I'd be heading back to um, a Western country. Um, I would be then having to rent somewhere to live, which would just eat the last of my travel money. And that would be it. Mm-hmm. Travel would be over for me, and I've elected to stay here, whether I'm right or, or wrong. That's still debatable. I like the fact that they're still debating, and they're still feeling optimistic. I, I just wish them very, very well, because I think they have got trouble times. Well, the thing is with it, too, yeah, if you go true. back to your country, it's not like you're going to be able to, or unlikely, you're going to be able to go back right now or, or in, you know, a month ago and then get work. So, like you said, Sam, you, you're going to mm. go back and you're going to pay extremely high prices to yeah. to rent something to stay somewhere with pretty much zero chance of income. Yeah, so a friend funny. Jeff, he's he's um, holed up in Lucknow in India, and he says, look, the way the um, it's been handled in this area of India is so much safer for me to be here than it is in the UK with the way it's been handled there. Really, I wondered about yeah. India, you know, because just yeah. with with the density of the population, but but they don't seem to be having. I, I don't I don't follow the numbers, but it doesn't seem to me that I've heard there's massive spikes there. Yeah, I've I haven't paid an awful lot of attention to what's happening in India. Um, I do know that um, Brazil is considered to be the next country that's going to be um, spiked. They had um, eight hundred and eighty-one deaths just on Tuesday. 
Mm. Um, Russia mm. Um, has announced yeah. that they've got 10,000 new cases. I think that was yesterday they announced that. Um, yeah, uh, so, getting bad. Yeah. yeah. We shall see. I think it's all going to just play out the way it's going to play out, and we have to sit tight and not expect it to all go away this year. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. How long it will be, I don't know. I've seen numbers like four years, five years before things are back to normal. Mm-hmm. And even then it may be different. Um, we, we can't allow ourselves to get well, frustrated and lazy because if no. we do, then we're just going to extend what's going on. We've got to treat this thing with respect and it's going to take some time. And we've all got to knuckle down and treat, continue to treat it with respect. You mean frustrated um, with the yeah, way that we have to be locked down, et cetera? Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's a good point. Yeah. I, I, I think social isolation of, you know, being able to shake hands or hug people or kiss someone, you won't be able to do that. And uh, you learn from history. We are still using the same techniques they used in 1919 with the Spanish flu, which is oh. isolation, separation. And that's the only way that these things will peter out or you'll get herd mentality. Herd immunity. Herd immunity, (laughs) say, yeah. And uh, mentality, yeah, we all got that. But anyway, um, (laughs) that's what's going to happen. Um, And you're right, I think, Grant, it'll be three or four years unless they come up with some miracle cure and it might cut that back to two years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We can only hope. But in the meantime, we all have to just take care be kind to each other, I think is really important. Um, be tolerant of each other and um, just stay safe as you can. I know we're being absolutely paranoid. Um, I'm of an age and Susan's even of an age now. She's light, younger than me where we're both at high risk. So we just have to be super careful. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's not just as much for ourselves, but we also have to be very careful that we are being careful for others because we could be right. an asymptomatic yeah. carrier and pass it on. I'm gearing up to travel in Australia and, um, you know, the four-wheel drive is getting fixed up, the bikes are getting fixed up and we're going to do a lot of exploring. As you said, Grant, you know, we can explore our own country. There's heaps and heaps and heaps of things that we can do. Before we walk away from this, Brian, I was just going to say, with this trip that you're planning, are there any things you're going to you feel you're going to do different while you're planning for this trip because of the conditions now? I mean, as far as you're, you're bringing protection, you know, the personal protection equipment, um, yeah, along and even the way you might have to treat fellow riders or or, or deal with fellow riders. Well, well, that's right. Well, what, I've, I've thought about that. And if, we, if you're camping with a few mates, you really have to still keep your distance. If you're going to a, a community where you have to buy food or fuel, you're, you're going to have to keep your distance. I'm going to have to take probably a face mask just in case um, people get a bit um, paranoid about strangers being in their town. Because we should add uh, masks and not, um, not, not disgust compl- you. No, it, masks, uh, masks here are for... And it's been widely uh, said that um, if you have the disease, yeah. you should be wearing a mask so you don't spread it. Mm-hmm. Um, within your own home. Within you your know. own home, you know. But uh, hand washing and taking um, um, stuff to keep your hands um, uh, clean uh, is very important. Um, and not touching your face. If you, if you, um, some of us have a tendency to touch our face all the time. Well, you shouldn't do that because that's how you ingest it. Um, if you've touched some surface that's got the disease, it's so contagious. So for me, um, it'll be a fairly um, isolated area we'll be going to anyway. But when you do come into towns, we'll have to be very, very careful. 
uh, even to this day, this is how I fuel up now. I pull my bike in, I take my helmet off, I leave my gloves on. I fill up the bike with, with both gloves on. And then I put the, the petrol bowser back and I take one glove off to use my card and open the, the door to where you're going to pay, wherever the shop is, with a gloved hand. And little things like that, um, they say, protect you from um, spreading the disease from um, surface to surface. Mm. So, you have to be careful of that. Of course, yeah. your, your gloves need to be cleaned as well. I mean, it's one thing I've noticed with some of the um, the yes. stores you go into, they're wearing rubber gloves, but they're never putting hand cleaner on them. So really, if there yeah. is any yeah. chance of this, they're That's going right. from one to the other. But but I think so far what they're saying is that, that um, now I'm sort of stepping out of my, my, definitely stepping out of my area of expertise, but they're saying that the surface contact is not really how it's happening. It, it's airborne. It's 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 the liquid in yeah. the air flying over and, and getting someone because I, I don't think there's been any cases that, of, of contacts or surface contact spreading. Yeah, that we know of. Uh, that we know of. Yeah. We know of. Yeah. 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 How do you prove the, that? Yeah. The know. virologists that I've seen on telly they, they, they've talked about it staying live on on contact surfaces. Yeah. And it, it is possible. I just hope that um, anybody who was planning to go on a big trip. Um, doesn't become despondent. I hope that they treat this as an opportunity to make their planning even better. Um, we've got yeah. the technology for being able to do that remotely so they can be really exploring the countries and finding out about the histories of the places, just like Graham was talking just now, um, of the different places they're going to um, and just give themselves a whole new level of, of travel potential. And yeah, okay, so if it takes another couple of years before they're able to get out there on the road, well, yeah, then use the time. Make that trip yeah. when it does happen even better still. And explore locally while you're waiting. Get your bike bedded down properly, you know, make sure you know how it all works and have everything in its place. Yeah, perfect. And you can always travel vicariously. And I'd just like to say that Facebook is such a creepy, creepy thing. <laughs> we, in the last three days, have been getting messages for a walk that we can do, a virtual walk of Hadrian's Wall. <laughs> now, how, did, how did Facebook know <laughs> that we're going to walk Hadrian's Wall? You just have mentioned it once. That's it. Oh, they know. my God. It is such a creepy, creepy thing. Yeah. Mind you. I might do the virtual walk of April <laughs> over the next year. Shirley, I, we, we really badly need a new tent and I've been clicking on a few sites, but why is it that the site that had the cheapest and then the nastiest and the most inappropriate tents is the one that keeps coming up on my screen? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they paid the price. That's all it mm. takes. They bought the word tent. Or they're following Sam's purchasing habits. I don't know. They just want you to have stories to tell, Sam, about the night the tent failed on all areas. Mm. Well, all right. To to wrap things up then, let's get into our plugs. And I'm going to start with Grant. Grant, what do you have? Well, how about the, the Achievable Dream Horizons Unlimited Motorcycle Adventure Travel Guide video series free? That sounds good. That sounds good. Okay, I'll take one of those. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, you're going to have to wait because it takes one. There's one episode or one chapter of the Achievable Dream series, and there are 15, one a week, free on Vimeo, Horizons 
Go to vimeo.com slash Horizons Unlimited and see the free episode this week. And if you want, you can also buy the whole works or one chapter or one DVD, well, downloadable DVD, whatever you like, um, all on half price. Mm. So that's to give you something to watch while you're stuck at home. Very cool. That's nice. And they can follow you on social media because you're posting as you change the videos up, aren't you? Yes. Every time we change it, once a week, we put up what the latest information is. Um, it's all there. So horizonsunlimited.com slash free hyphen dream is where all the details are. All right. That's fantastic. And what about as far as meets go for, for this year? What's the word on it? At this point, we are postponing everything up until August. And when we get closer to August, we will know. We're hoping by the middle of June at the latest, we'll have August figured out. And it's going to depend very much on which countries are opening up and how many people they allow. Like Germany's just opened up quite a bit, but how many people are they allowing? I think it's 10 at the moment. Mm. <laughs> it's going to be a small meeting. Yeah, or a whole it's going bunch to be a very small, small meeting. <laughs> yeah. So we'll see. Okay. We're not sure. Graham, what do you have? Oh, I've got a world exclusive for you, actually, Jim. For the last five years, I've been gathering um, various things to compile my next book. And for the last five months, nonstop, I've been writing it. And my new book, my fourth book, Nirvana, When You Found Your Greener Grass, is now available for pre-order. It's... Uh, about how a Horizons Unlimited meeting ended up uh, bringing me to a new country where I didn't understand the alphabet, didn't understand the language or the culture, and relocated. It's uh, in diary format, like all my books are. It's uh, several things. It's about travel. It's about relocation. It's about discovering a new country by actually living in it. Um, it's a little bit of an expose. It's uh, my diary, again, like they all are, about... Um, it's sort of travel related, but also about putting down some roots as well, which is sort of something that's quite relevant at the moment. So it is now available for pre-order. It will be out shortly. And you can go to my website, grandfield.co.uk. Uh, <laughs> and on the homepage, you will see the pre-order available for my new book, Near Varna. Varna being uh, the second biggest town in, uh, in Bulgaria. Very Fantastic. Good. Congratulations. Well done, Graham. Thank you. So that you've been you've been using your time. Well, I started it in January before started actually writing in January before all this stuff went down, and it's really weird because I was so immersed in it as I always am when I write my books. Uh, you know, sort of ten to sixteen hours a day, waking up in the middle of the night, writing for a few hours, and I was convinced it was twenty fifteen. I was convinced I was about approaching my fiftieth birthday, and it was so because I'm going out so little. And also I was convinced it was sort of summer into autumn time. And it's a real message with your mind when you go back into your reality, when you're so immersed in the thing that you're writing. So it's, it's been quite a, a, a strange, and also going out of some memories that weren't so nice. <laughs> so yeah, that's the great thing about, about keeping a diary is you can absolutely immerse yourself back into a time if you want to, if you want to or not. So yep. Yeah. That's my plug. Very Graham, cool. Graham, is it an e-book or a hard, like a real book or both? It's going to be uh, both. Or I don't know if we're going to be able to uh, correspond to release simultaneously, but um, the real book is really where all my 
uh, attention is focused at the moment. We're still working on the back cover. We've just got a couple more things to tie up. And uh, and then once it's done, it will be put into an EPUB document and uploaded. So it will be a, an ebook as well. Fantastic. Excellent. Well done. Gramfield.co.uk is the website. And that is great news. Sam, what do you have? Well, um, pretty much all of the events that I had lined up um, for this year have been um, postponed, of course, uh, many until next year. We're still watching what's happening towards the end of the year. So, yeah, let's see what happens. Um, I've got some good news, and that is that my distributors are back again at work, So, um, but slowly, um, reduced numbers because of spacing and so on. But it means that people like Amazon, the book depository and so on, are slowly getting my books back into stock, which is brilliant. But in the meantime, I've still got that four-book special offer um, on my books. Um, and the four books take you through the six different continents that made up the eight-year round-the-world trip. And the four books should be more or less... Um, uh, 70 US dollars, but I've reduced those down to $57. And there's free, free postage and it's approximate pricing um, because, of course, the exchange rate is still going up and down a little bit. And there's free postage of the four books in the UK and significantly reduce, reduced um, post and packing to the rest of the world. And if people just go to the shop on my website, which is sam-manicum.com, then they'll find the tab um, to order. Um, and of course, all the books are available as audio books and on Kindle. Very nice. Shirley, what do you have? Um, nothing really, but an apology for those kind-hearted people who have bought our books that are still sitting at uh, Tullamarine Airport in Melbourne waiting for a plane that can take them to the US and the UK. <laughs> um, do you not have mail going out? Like, we do, but it's so slow. bloody slow. It's just it's just absolutely absurd how long it's taking things uh, to get in and out of Australia. But you can get all of our books as ebooks through Amazon and all the, the usual outlets and the information's on aussiesoverland.com.au. Very nice. Brian? <laughs> um, I'm going to continue to push um, the website walltowallride.com which is my um, our ride for um, the police legacy. We've, we've had uh, four police officers run over by a truck here um, last month and another police officer, uh, superintendent in South Australia, she was um, a victim of a, a motor, motor uh, vehicle accident as well. And um, this ride, uh, which goes to Canberra, uh, raises money for legacy to look after the children and the families and all the rest of it. Waltowallride.com, uh, you can get on that site and register for all Australian riders. Um, if you're interested in hopefully doing a ride in September, it will be on. We're planning for it to go ahead. Uh, and we've actually had a, um, people from Canada contact us over um the wall-to-wall ride site and make donations and all the rest of it. So it's been fantastic that these families will be looked after as best we can. The community's come forward um, very well to support. You said, hasn't they, Shirley? It's, um, yeah. You know, it's, it's been fantastic to see the community support for um, what these people have been put through and their families have been put through. But I'll keep pushing that website and it's $85 registration fee for the ride. Every red cent goes to um, supporting some family that needs it 
So, And if we're not allowed to have a group of two, last year it was two and a half thousand people, if we're not allowed to have that kind of group, yeah, it'll be something, but we yeah, just don't know what. we're still working at that. Um, if we can't do the ride, there'll be something on. Mm. So um, if anyone uh, has any queries, they can get in touch with us through our Aussies Overland website and uh, we can talk to them, talk them through the process. But that's aussiesoverland.com.au. Thanks. Oh, that's great. That is a good cause for sure. Well, there's plenty here. I mean, if you're if you're sitting at home and you're looking for things to do, I mean, Graham's got a new book out. He's got all the, the books he has before. You've got Sam with his books. You've got Shirley and Brian with their books. Uh, Grant with the, the videos that you can get online. And of course, some Adventure Rider Radio and Adventure Rider Radio Raw. So there should be plenty there to, to keep you busy, at least for uh, a little while anyway. Well, that was great, everyone. Thank you very much. That was a lot of fun and, and a wonderful show. It was great having Dan in here for the for the first part of it. He had to go because it's his daughter's birthday. Um, but uh, but that was good fun. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Thanks very much, everyone. Talk to you later. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Well, that wraps things up for this month's ARR Raw. And thank you to my co-host, Sam Manicom, starting with Sam Manicom. He lives in the UK. He's got four books and audiobooks that follow his eight-year motorcycle journey around the world. His website, sam-manicom.com. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are from Australia. They also publish their own books on motorcycle travel. You can buy them wherever you get ebooks at their website, aussiesoverland.com.au. Graham Field lives in Bulgaria. He's the author of audiobooks and written books that chronicle his journeys. Uh, he also has uh, T-shirts and other things that he sells at his website at gramfield.co.uk. And, of course, Grant Johnson is from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for our adventure motorcycling community. Horizons Unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information as well as a huge forum of dedicated travelers that connect you with other travelers. They also put on the hub meets around the world. You can see a worldwide list of hub meets at their website, horizonsunlimited.com. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you for listening. Join us again next time. Oh, and don't forget, if you want to get uh, your question or a topic suggestion in here, drop by our website. You can also look at the show notes. I have some more information in here. You can make comments on the show notes. AdventureRiderRadio.com.